Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Todd Dresner. He's the director of the documentary film, The Campaign of Minor Bow. It's probably safe to say Bo Copley never expected to run for U.S. Senate. A lifelong resident of Mingo County, West Virginia, Copley worked in the coal industry for 11 years until he was laid off on September 18, 2015. In May of 2016, Copley was invited to join a roundtable discussion with Hillary Clinton, who was campaigning in West Virginia before the state's presidential primary. Copley, his voice breaking, showed Clinton a picture of his three children and challenged her assertion that she was a friend to coal miners. Copley's raw emotion broke through the usual campaign chatter and throughout the campaign, he was a regular on cable news. Copley tried to take advantage of his surprise political celebrity by running for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate in 2018. But without money, experience, or a traditional campaign infrastructure, he quickly discovered that being a politician is harder than it looks. It's a great film, and we had a great discussion about it. I give you Todd Dresner. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You are the director of a new documentary film, The Campaign of Minor Bow, which follows the story of this out-of-work coal miner in West Virginia, Bo Copley, who had this unusual opportunity to interact with Senator Hillary Clinton, Secretary Clinton, candidate Clinton, when she was running for president, and kind of challenged her about some statements she made about the, the coal mining industry. And it made him a sort of cable news regular on Fox. And so throughout the campaign, he was a regular. Because I guess West, West Virginia was kind of a battlegroundish state. And he decides to try his own hand at office, running for office, which is what your film was about. I'm curious, how did you discover Bo? Was it just through your own consumption of cable news? Or was it reading articles? I mean, what, what, how did you come across this character? And what made you think, oh my gosh, of course, a film? Well, I live in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and in 2016, of course, we are all uh, very much on the left here. And so everyone I know uh, voted for Hillary and, like everybody else in the world, expected her to win. And so uh, after that did not happen, I was thinking what I could do as a documentary filmmaker. Um, and it occurred to me, maybe I can go somewhere different, make a film about someone very different from me and just sort of, uh, even though I don't agree with what has happened in the election, just try to better understand it. And so about a month after the election, there was a New York Times article um, that was about Bo and some other members of his community in West Virginia and about what Trump might do for coal miners. So that led me to see his meeting with Hillary Clinton. And I got in touch with him. I thought he was interesting. Um, but uh, at first, there, it wasn't clear what a film would be about because his so what, involvement... What's in the, that first conversation like? You, you call him... What do you talk about? Yeah, well, I mean... At first, I thought maybe I'll just go to this town and make a film about a number of people in the town, uh, just like a portrait of Southern West Virginia. Um, so I just wanted to see if he was open to that. And I think the first conversation, I don't really remember a lot of the details of it, except, you know, he has dealt with a lot of the media at this point and 
there's a certain suspicion of, of outsiders that are asking for more than, you know, half an hour for a, a newspaper article or a interview. You know, I was asking for a lot of his time. And at the time he was just sort of trying to figure out, could he take this notoriety he had gotten and do something with it? So he, he didn't necessarily want to commit to my original idea of the documentary, I think, because he was, he didn't want to close himself off to other options that might be more lucrative to him or, and, and the problem was, you know, again, it wasn't clear like what the film would be a portrait of a town. It's kind of interesting. It's hard to make a documentary about it though. There was no beginning, middle and end. And so what really the real conversations happened after he decided to run for Senate, because that was really interesting to me because that gives you an automatic hook to hang your story on. Um, and at that point, it was talking to him about convincing him that I wanted to do an empathetic portrait of him and not come in and like make fun of him or do a hit job on him or things like that. And that took a few conversations with him and his campaign manager to, uh, I think, establish that initial trust. But this guy sounds like he had a sense of ambition and a sense of his own profile. If he's saying, OK, maybe there might be more lucrative options. I mean, he, he had a sense that he was riding a wave from this, these cable appearances. I mean, he had a sense that, that there was an opportunity in front of him. I think he was hoping there was. Um, I mean, the way that he always talks about it, and I don't um, question his sincerity in this, is to say that God led him to do this. But, you know, I think everything is a mixture of what you feel led to do. And, and you know, you have to have a certain amount of ambition to be an unemployed coal miner who's never been in politics and doesn't have connections or financial resources and to think you can win a race for U.S. Senate. Um, I don't think he likes to talk about it, particularly in terms of ambition. Uh, and he felt like the reason that he should run for Senate was because at this meeting with Hillary Clinton was also West Virginia's Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who was up for reelection. And, you know, um, Trump won West Virginia in 2016 by 42 points. And so Bo took that as a, a sign that Manchin was not really in touch with his, uh, constituents if he was supporting Hillary, who lost the state by so much. And he thought, wouldn't it be poetic justice if he could defeat Manchin after Manchin was at this meeting trying to help Hillary Clinton? All of which, you know, it makes sense, I think. But I do think that, yes, he had been out of work for a number of years. He didn't particularly love coal mining when he was in it. And he was... He had gotten this momentum from 2016 of getting on all of these cable news shows. He was in New York on election night with Katie Couric on Yahoo News. And so, yeah, I think he was looking for a way that he could do something different that he would really enjoy. But um, I think he was uncomfortable talking about it in terms of his own ambition, even though, you know, every politician is ambitious. So it was a little um, uh, he was uncomfortable, but I don't think he needed to be. I, I, it's interesting as I was watching the film. I mean, it's oftentimes the case that in primaries, you have to kind of almost overplay contrast. I mean, sometimes there are significant contrasts. Uh, for instance, maybe when um, AOC was running against Joe Rawley or some, sometimes there's some significant contrasts. But right. it, I was struggling to see the contrasts other than personal biography with the candidates, right? And I, I felt like that was almost, Bo, it seemed like Bo's leading kind of case for himself it was was that he was a different kind of guy he was this sort of coal miner that worked in the coal mining industry that, that fell in hard times but i mean it seemed like most of the candidates were not very far apart on the issues yeah i think that's right 
And that's because it was a, a Republican primary in a state where that was very supportive of Trump. And so they agreed with each other. And I think Bo's case was, uh, he's not a career politician. He's genuine. He's a common person who understands, uh, what everyday West Virginians are going through. And, and that kind of, kind of campaign can be successful. And I think we're even seeing now, you know, Joe Biden is not a common everyday person, but he is a lot of his campaign is about, you know, I'm a good guy and the other guy isn't. Uh, so it is a, a campaign that can work. Um, in Bo's case, I think it was kind of the main option he had because if you wanted someone who had a lot of experience in politics and knew the levers of government and how to deliver money to West Virginia and that sort of thing, Bo was not your candidate. But if you felt like all of these politicians say whatever they need to get elected and nothing ever changes and that sort of thing, then his message was, well, why don't you send someone who's your neighbor, who's like you, who knows what you're going through and let him give it a try, which can be a powerful message. I think it worked for AOC. You have to do certain things in a campaign to make that work. And that was challenging for Bo. Yeah. And I wonder like for AOC, I mean, she had also an ideological distinction. I mean, she was really pushing on a, a kind of Bernie Sanders leftward vision for the Democratic Party, as opposed to this kind of more Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, center left establishment, we're getting it done kind of thing. But I wonder, you know, the, the, the levers of government, part of it, do, it, do we demonize politicians in some sense, like, and say, oh my gosh, they're no good. They're in there. But I mean, Joe Biden, part of the reason I think he'll, he, if he wins, he'd be effective is he has spent decades in Washington. He knows how to get things done, right? He knows how committee structures work. He knows how, how the House and the Senate work it. On some level, uh, aren't you kind of disadvantaged if you go and you don't know any of that? <laughs> yeah, I think certainly there would be a learning curve. Um, but you have to run the campaign that it makes sense for you to run. And in Bo's case, having never held political office or even worked professionally in uh, government, he didn't have the argument that he knows how to make things happen. He had this other argument. So that's what he tried. Had he won and then run again for reelection, I think he would be saying something different. He would say now he would say, I have experience. I know how to get things done and send me back. But, um, you have to go with what you have at the moment that you're running. So his his best chance was to emphasize this idea of being a common everyday person. It's remarkable that Joe Manchin winds up winning this race and it winds up winning a race where Trump goes and wins the state by 42 points. I mean, why aren't Democrats just sitting us down with Joe Manchin every day? Like, how do we appeal to these kinds of Trump voters? Because he seems to be able to do it, right? Yeah, West Virginia's a unique state. I mean, even in Bo's home county, which is Mingo County in the heart of coal country, uh, there are very few registered Republicans. Um, vast majority are registered Democrats, and that goes back years and years. The state was dominated by Democrats. But the National Party uh, on certain issues has moved to the left. Um, I think economically, they may still be where a lot of West Virginia voters are, but I I think some West Virginia Democrats are uncomfortable with some of the social issues, um, whether that's same-sex same marriage or abortion or uh, transgender rights. Um, so you have a Democratic Party in West Virginia that is to the right of the National Party. And Joe Manchin, he obviously, he does very well in West Virginia. I don't think he would have the slightest chance running in a national primary for the Democrats. Uh, although, who knows? He's not, he's not so different from Biden. So... 
it's hard to say. I mean, I, I'm out of the prediction business uh, after 2016. I don't know, but um, it seems like there are a lot of candidates that probably would be decent general election candidates that can't get out of a primary. Like Bloomberg is probably like that. I think Joe Manchin's probably like that. There are people that probably couldn't win a primary, but if you put them up there in a national election as the candidate, they probably wouldn't do bad. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, and you know, we have to maybe think about the primary system. Uh, you obviously want to be appealing to your base. You want your base to be excited to come out and vote. Um, and you want, once you're in office, you want the person that you elected to be meeting the needs of the base. But at the same time, you also have to win the election. So it's this balancing act. And I think Manchin has got it perfected for West Virginia. Because I think what Bo is saying, that uh, someone who supports a candidate who loses by 42 points, it's not unreasonable to say that candidate's out of touch. But then that candidate turns around two years later and wins. Uh, that's quite a balancing act. And uh, the thing is that I think it's probably hard to replicate in other states or on a national level. Um, Manchin is a lifelong West Virginian. He was governor. Uh, now he's senator. He just knows that state so well. The moment he goes away, it's probably that he goes to a Republican. It's just a very unique situation for him. One thing that strikes me as I'm watching the film, it struck me, is just how much money makes a difference and how Bo's campaign was not very well funded and uh, that you know you, you just can't buy enough lawn signs you can't get enough ads you can't break, break you can't break through right i mean there, there's the sense in which you really see that money if you it, you could be a really great candidate but without some money to get your name in circulation to get awareness out there it seems like you really can't go anywhere even in a state that's like you know not uh you know it's not a massively populous state like texas or california or something even in a smaller state it, it just it takes a lot of money just to get competitive yeah that's right i mean and people talk about west virginia as a small state well i, I drove across it i drove from one end to the other it takes six hours to, you know it's if you're running in a statewide race you need money you're never going to meet all the voters that you need to vote for you to make you win um the thing is if you're in that position you really need a strategy like it was not, I think, a surprise to Bo that he was underfunded and not as well known. Uh, he just didn't have, I think, the experience and the help to figure out, like, how do you take that situation and try to turn it around into a, a positive? Uh, AOC did it. She wasn't running statewide, obviously, but, um, you can start from that level that Bo started and win a race or at least get closer. You just need to, you know, understand the circumstances of that race at the very beginning and come up with a way to try to work around it so that maybe you get more popular, you start getting more donations, or you, you know, you have grassroots volunteers all over the state who are, you know, young and helping you and not being paid or whatever it is. Um, and I just think that Bo, while he became, I think, a much better campaigner from the beginning to the end, he like, it goes back to not having the experience and, and not being able to bring in people to help him. He just had a hard time figuring out how to implement a strategy that would help someone who is in his position. His campaign manager is an interesting guy. I mean, what, what I, I love one of the early scenes where he's trying to coach him on how to read this opening statement. Where did he find the campaign manager? Well, it's an interesting story. His wife, Bo's wife, um, was a photographer. She's since now gotten a job as a high school teacher, but she was a photographer and she did weddings and she did the campaign manager, Jared's wedding. And Bo sometimes was the assistant on these photography shoots. So he, 
came along with his wife to Jared's wedding and that's where they met, uh, I think, and then got to know each other later. And, and Jared, um, is a lawyer and was an intern in Congress. So he knew a little bit about politics and a little bit about Congress. And so Bo brought him on as the campaign manager. The issue was that he lives in Kentucky and he has a full-time job as a lawyer. So he was like working on the campaign in his spare time. So, um, you know, it was difficult for him to, to give as much attention as he wanted to. And also not knowing the state as well, like who to, who to contact in which county who could really move the needle for Bo and that sort of thing. That was a challenge. But, uh, and I know like we're making it sound like the campaign had no idea what it's doing. I do just want to say like Bo, I think genuinely cares about the issues and the people of West Virginia. And he met a lot of people and did a lot of good campaigning. I just think any candidate in his position would have had a lot of these similar challenges. Right. Yeah. He had probably the natural retail pollock politicking skills right it's just yeah so. you can have all the retail politicking skills but if you don't have the campaign mechanism that gets you in front of like like you do see him in the film he intuitively intuitively connects with voters and and he's incredibly likable i mean he's a guy that does come across as very genuine but but you just have this challenge right like you're saying like you know west virginia is a big state like it's the length of pennsylvania it might not have the population of, of, of pennsylvania but it's but just the 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 square mileage you have to kind of traverse to actually put those retail politics skills uh you know in in play just seemed to be well in him in his case it seemed to be an insurmountable obstacle yeah and um what was so interesting was that i think the reason that he went viral after his meeting with hillary clinton is just what you're saying is that he was so skilled at uh retail politics and authentic and genuine and that came across so much in that meeting and it was so different than your typical uh, campaign event that it got a lot of notice. But then when he turned around and tried to leave that, he's in that one stereotype of unemployed white working class minor, which is sort of catnip for the media in the 2016 election. And then he turns around and tries to actually gain real power, become a politician. Suddenly he can't get that same coverage, um, which is really interesting. I think trying to break out of this mold that the media has put you in. Um, if they had given him the same opportunities for interviews and done stories about him as they had in 2016, it might have helped him because he still would have had those same skills. But as soon as you go out of the mold that the, the media has put you in, they, they suddenly, or at least in this case, they seem to lose interest in covering him as much. I'm curious when you make a film about a guy like Bo, who's likable, I mean, What's your interpersonal connection to him like? Because you're spending a, a lot of time with him. I mean, did you feel like you were friends by the end of it? I mean, is he a subject of a of a documentary piece? Is it somewhere in between? I mean, how do you negotiate the ambiguities of, of interpersonal relations when you're making a film about somebody like this? Well, in this case where the film is so focused on him and his perspective, it would be really hard to do if you didn't like the person and empathize with his situation. So I was lucky in that respect that he is so likable and genuine and because his campaign was so bare bones, um, it wasn't like a lot of campaign documentaries that have been made in the past where it's all consultants and things like that. You may not even see the candidate. It's like we would be driving across West Virginia and it's me and Bo and my cameraman and my sound person. And there's a lot of time to get to know him. And I think that was all very helpful in terms of building a trusting relationship so that when we got to the end of the campaign, there are certainly some painful moments and vulnerable moments that he let us see that he might not have otherwise. I do think we're friends now. It's always awkward that 
line between friendship and, and documentary maker and documentary subject, uh, because your first in, um, responsibility is to tell the story. And this is a story of a campaign to, that did not go particularly well. So there are moments in this film that Bo doesn't particularly enjoy watching. And there are moments that I'm like, as I edited them together, I knew he wouldn't enjoy watching, but this is what happened. What did, what, what, what didn't he enjoy? Well, there's a, a debate sequence um, that is one of the longer sequences in the film um, where all six Republican candidates um, came together for a debate before the primary. And uh, there was a CNN reporter there, Dana Bash, who um, interviewed Bo and that was potentially an opportunity for him to get some national attention, get some more um, momentum behind his campaign. And he did get that interview, but for a a variety of reasons, which I won't spoil since we have already spoiled the outcome of the election, which is not a big spoiler, but I won't spoil exactly what happens at the debate, but it was, it didn't go quite as he hoped. Um, So there's that moment. And then, you know, we are talking about a campaign that lost and every time he watches the end of the film, he sees that again. And so I know that that's not the most fun experience for him, but I also know that he, I think feels like I understood him and I told his story uh, effectively so that even if he has to watch his campaign, not go that well, he does, I think feel grateful that I brought his perspective to a wider audience. Did you guys talk like public policy and politics at all when you're on these long drives? A little bit, but I didn't go into it to change his mind or to have my mind changed. And, um, and even the movie itself doesn't have a lot of policy in it because I felt like the audience for it could be to some extent people like Bo, but also people like me who just are very different from Bo and wanted to learn about a person who's different from them. And the moment you drop a policy thing into the movie, like if Bo had said, climate change is a hoax. I don't think he even believes that. But if he had said that, you know, how many people would that turn off? And I really wanted it to be um, his story. And I think uh, most viewers of this will be politically savvy enough to understand what the platform of a conservative evangelical Republican would be. Um, So he talked policy on the campaign. We talked about it sometimes among ourselves, but I think we tended to like talk about TV shows and sports and Star Wars and the Marvel universe and just sort of it's ironic that we were like staying on safer ground while I was making this movie. That's all about politics. But I think that was um, probably a good thing to do just to, cause I didn't, I don't know what would have come out of having a big policy argument with him. So you guys are both Marvel universe guys, not DC people. Uh, he's a very big Marvel universe guy. Yeah. I mean, I've, I don't think I've seen all of the movies. I think he has, but uh, that's that impressive. That's a lot of films. It's a, a lot of films. It's a lot of films. Yes. Well, I'm wondering for a guy like Bo, as you're following him around, who, who is again, a novice at the political game, how much was the learning curve for him policy wise? Because I mean, there's, or is it not that much of a challenge because he's just got an intuitive feel for what people care about? I mean, because it does, it does seem like if you're going into politics at a, at a statewide level, it, it, that's a big, it's a big, learning curve, I would think, around policy if you're not kind of, if you've not been spending a lot of time in it previously. Yeah, I think there were some things that he definitely had a position on and could speak uh, about very easily. And then a lot of times he would say that he wanted to listen to the voters and see what their concerns were. And so he didn't necessarily want to formulate a position ahead of time. And that 
answer. I think you could argue whether that's effective or not, because obviously you can listen to the voters, but they're not always going to agree with each other. And ultimately, people in these positions, U.S. Senate, have to make a decision and they have to understand that not everybody's going to agree with it. But I think he, as part of his um, pitch that the common everyday person was a better person, was saying, you know, Joe Manchin went to Washington and he does what the Democrats want. He supports Hillary Clinton. He votes with Chuck Schumer. And I'm going to listen to you and do what you want, Um, which is a, a possibly effective pitch and be a possibly effective way of avoiding a discussion on policy if you're not completely up to speed on policy. And I think it was a little bit of both in his campaign. I wonder too, in an age where we, where there's just a continual lack of appreciation for expertise, if that's a winning strategy, right? Because it's in the sense of you're like, hey, like we're all the armchair experts, right? We'll all figure out together. Although in reality, there's probably a host of issues that come before Congress that are so exceedingly complex that a congressperson probably needs a whole group of staffers and experts to even feel their way towards a position where you or I would just uninitiated would have an incredibly difficult time, right? Like coming to any kind of a sensible position. But but it seems like the populist impulse sort of is against expertise. And that almost seems to favor a guy like Bo. Yeah, I think that was certainly the message coming out of 2016. I mean, Donald Trump says he's an expert in everything, but it it is becoming increasingly clear to me, at least, that he's an expert in nothing. Um, but nevertheless, there he is. And um, Bo, I think, uh, is much more interested in, in actually learning the issues than Trump is. But he's certainly not an expert. He would be the first to say that he's not an expert. But I think there was the sense coming out of 2016 that what we're looking for is not the politician who knows everything and says this, the exact right thing every time, but someone who's really authentic and um, cares and has a connection to the people. And Trump presented himself that way in 2016. You can argue about whether that's realistic. But in Bo's case, um, I think if anybody's going to make that pitch, that Bo is certainly entitled to make it. Um, if he had gotten into office, there would have been a big learning curve. And I think he would have needed a staff of people who could have really helped him get to know all the issues that he would need to know. But as far as like running in an election campaign, that is a reasonable strategy. Yeah. I mean, have you ever thought about what would have happened if he ran against Joe Manchin? I mean, what kind of campaign that would have been? Uh, yeah. I mean, it would be interesting because once you're through the primary, the party tends to consolidate support behind you. So he would, uh, I think he would have a real chance. It would be an interesting race. Um, I think Manchin ultimately ran against uh, the state attorney general of West Virginia and ran largely on health care, saying that the attorney general had done some things to undermine people's insurance coverage, which is a really big deal in West Virginia. Um, In Bo's case, there really isn't anything to attack him on. He has no political record. Uh, The only thing you can attack him on, I think, is what we've been talking about, is the lack of experience. And as we've seen, that can be turned around on someone to say they've been in Washington too long. So that would have been interesting to see if he had made it through the primary. Yeah, because Manchin strikes me as one of these guys that is pretty smart, but also it was pretty folksy, right? Like the so he has kind of it seems like he's got an oar in both sides of the water. Like he, he's a guy that comes across as knowledgeable, but it seems like he could go toe to toe with Bo on at least connection with voters because he comes across as I mean, there's a reason the guy wins. Yeah. When when Republicans sweep the state. Yeah, you don't get to be governor twice and elected senator twice 
if you don't have a connection with the voters. Um, so I think Manchin would probably be the favorite against Bo, uh, just because of his experience and his the money he had. Although Bo would have gotten more money from the party if he had been the nominee, but um, uh, yeah, winning as a Democrat in West Virginia right now is, as we've said, it's uh, an impressive feat. So I wouldn't discount uh, Joe Manchin in any race. I think. Bo could have made it competitive, but I don't know how it would have turned out. What do you think was the biggest thing you learned making this film? Well, um, I had never been to West Virginia before, and especially in 2016, because of all of this focus on the rural voters who were supporting Trump, there were all these articles uh, about West Virginia and other areas like it, and they tended to focus on uh, economic devastation, environmental devastation, the opioid epidemic, that sort of thing, and you get the impression from these news stories that everybody there is miserable and you go spend time there with Bo and the other people I met that he is friends with, particularly in his church. And they're all so friendly and they're all have a tight connection to each other. Uh, they want, they're not trying to get out of the state that they're trying to improve the state. And it's kind of a trite thing to learn, but it, it's, I think it's important to see that what we, um, you know, those quick five minute news stories of a place don't give you the real feel. You actually have to spend some time there and you start to see that uh, even in communities that have significant challenges, the people there can be happy and they can be doing things to improve their community, just like people all over the country are. Uh, so I think that was kind of eye opening. I'm interested. You're a documentary filmmaker in an age of a pandemic. I mean, how, how has that changed your own work and lifestyle right now. And you're in New York, which is the, was the, I mean, your numbers have gone down we're recording yeah. this conversation in September of 2020 and your numbers have gone significantly down. But I mean, how is that? How, how have you coped with the pandemic? And are you, when do you think you'll be able to make films again? I mean, how do you process this? Well, I was very lucky that uh, by the time the pandemic hit, the film was almost done and the things that I'm doing now to get it out there, uh, which is like, get it on streaming services and do podcast interviews like this and all of that sort of thing can be done uh, remotely. If I had been in the middle of a film, it would have been a real challenge and particularly this film because it would have shut down all campaigning. There would have been really nothing to film. So I'm very lucky in that sense. As far as what happens next, I, I don't know what my next project is going to be, uh, whether it'll be directly related to the pandemic, but um, given just where I was on the film when the pandemic hit, I think I'm likely to just wait until we have more of a resolution with the pandemic before I do something else. Um, I think filmmakers who were at different points in their projects had a different calculus than I did, but I, I was lucky enough to be able to mostly keep doing what I'm doing with the exception of going to film festivals, which I do miss. How is the mood in Brooklyn right now? Um, it's okay. I actually spent a lot of the pandemic, uh, upstate in Ithaca where my in-laws live and we happened to have a friends of theirs with an empty house where we could stay in. And so that was nice during the worst part of the pandemic to be able to go outside and have a little more space and that sort of thing. Um, but here it, it's interesting. Some people are, they go out in masks. Some people go out in masks that are under their chins, which I'm like, what is the point of that? Is that a fashion statement? I, I don't know. Um, you know, there's a lot of stories about how hot the real estate market is in the New York suburbs and when are people going to go back to office buildings and what's going to happen to the subway. And they've just postponed the start of the New York city public schools. Um, so there's still a lot of uncertainty, but the good thing is our, 
our positive rate for COVID is very low. And there have certainly been multiple times in the past where people are like, well, this is it for New York City and New York City comes back. So I, I hope that will happen again. I do too. And I, cause I'm not for the least of which, uh, I'm excited to see your next film because I loved this one. Thanks for making this film about, um, Minor Bo and his campaign. Thanks for spending some time talking with me about it. Thanks. I uh, enjoyed the conversation. And can you tell us where we, our listeners can find the film if they want to watch it in their comfort of their own homes? Sure. There's a number of ways. Uh, it's going to be broadcast on various public television stations around the country, and you sort of have to check your local listings for that. Uh, that's a, a shorter version of the film, cut down for a public television hour. It'll also be on uh, streaming services starting in early October, or it's available right now from my website, which is minorbowfilm.com. And uh, if you want to take advantage of that, um, there are some bonus features you can get, and there's also going to be a discount code for listeners of the podcast. Just enter give and take at checkout and you'll get 10% off. And uh, that kind of purchase is the best way to support um, independent documentary filmmakers who always need support. So I thank anyone who can find the film in any of those ways. I highly recommend it. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I, I say to you listeners, uh, you, you will not regret it. It's a great film. <laughs>